And okay, hello friends, welcome to an exciting Chaburashiur. Today we have the privilege of having Professor Tzvi Zohar with us in the final installment of this three-part series on Sefaradi Teleological Halakha. During this series, we explored the methodology, the considerations, the innovation, and in ingenuity of the halachic framework of the Sefaradi Chachamim by going through three different fascinating halachic cases. Last week, we went through the brilliant Teshuvah Chachamesas regarding the butchers of Tlemcen who are violating Shabbat. And today we shall look at the approach of Chacham Ohana regarding Karite and Rabbinate intermarriage. Um, all our lectures are recorded and available on our website. If you have questions, please raise your hand, write in the chat box, or wait to the end when, please God, we will try to take some questions. Uh, the short sheet has been shared on our members' Discord and will be shared in the chat box as well. With that said, thank you all for joining us today. Uh, Professor, it is an honor and privilege to have you with us, and the floor is yours. Um, shalom, uh, good evening, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are in the world. And uh, here in Israel, it's just after 10.30 p.m. And in uh, this current session, we will be discussing um, Teshuvah of Rabbi um, Nisim Binyamin Ohana. So first of all, you should know about Rabbi Nisim Binyamin Ohana, that he was born in Algeria and came in his youth to uh, Eretz Yisrael, where he studied in various Sephardic yeshivot. And then later on, um, in the first decade of the, as a young man in the first decade of the 20th century, he was the rabbi of the Jewish community in Gaza, in Gaza, uh, where he uh, was approached by the local mufti, uh, who there was missionary propaganda being spread in, by Christians in Gaza that, um, the Bible, the Tanakh, uh, contained verses that uh, hinted or pointed to the advent of Jesus and Christianity. And the uh, Mufti approached the rabbi, or could they go over the sources together? And the rabbi would explain to him, Rabbi Ohana, why this Christian interpretation was invalid. And so they went over this, they sat and discussed for very several sessions. And uh, this led to the fact that the rabbi composed a short book of uh, the answers to the Christian doctrines on these topics, which was very useful to the Mufti. And much later, uh, uh, many years later, Rabbi Ohana published this. Uh, he then became uh, the rabbi of the, the city of Port Said, which is at the northern end of the Suez Canal. And in the 1930s and the late 1920s, 1930s, until 1942, he was the Avbedin of Cairo. In 1942, he was invited to be the Sephardic chief rabbi of the city of Haifa, a post that he held until uh, 1962 when he passed away. 
Several years after that, for several years, the post remained vacant. And in 1968, Rabbi Yosef Massas, who had recently arrived from Morocco, was appointed the Sephardic chief rabbi of Haifa. Um, so that's, we have here uh, Rabbi Ohana. While serving in Cairo, Rabbi Ohana became aware and cognizant of the issue of the relations between the Rabbinite Jews and the Karaite Jews in Egypt. And um, um, the, the issues that this posed. And, and now I will make a brief, a brief excursus upon this issue. Okay, now, you know, there are various, there certainly were in the time of Bait Sheni and uh, many different groups of Jews who had different religious ideologies. Now we call them sects, but in the time of Bait Sheni, it's not clear who is the majority. Right, uh, the Tzdukim, the Prushim, the Isim, this, that, or many groups. Um, it is the case that after the destruction of the temple, and especially after the failure of the Baal Kokhba revolt uh, in the middle of the second century, right, it ended in 135, uh, the the uh, beliefs and attitudes and scholarship and sources that we today identify with as rabbinite Jews, meaning that we believe in the oral tradition of the rabbis, uh, became uh, predominant in the Jewish world to the best of our knowledge. However, several centuries later, right, in around the year 800 plus minus, there came uh, in uh, Bavel uh, resistance to the dominance of the rabbis and rabbinic scholarship in determining the face and character of Judaism. Um, Classically, the name that's associated with the beginning of this uh, movement is Anan ben David, who came from the family of Rashi Hagula. Um, but apparently, there was a whole popular culture that said, Why should the rabbis be the mediators of our understanding of? Uh, Torah and Tanakh, right? And uh, Adraba, we believe, said these people who then became called B'nai Mikra or Karaites, we believe in the divinity of the Tanakh. However, rabbis, what do they do? They're learned people who provide us with their own best insights and interpretations of the meaning of the Tanakh for us, especially in the practical halachic level. But anybody can do that. So we don't need this whole structure of the Geonim and the Yeshivot and uh, the whole hierarchy. And anybody can and should interpret the Torah 
and the tradition to the best of their own knowledge and capabilities. And this became a movement called the Karaites. Um, and it's very likely that at certain points around the year 1000, 1100, um, the Karaites were close to half of the Jewish people in the world. Um, and um, later on, this led to a lot of issues. But at the time that this happened, actually, you see families that were split. Some of the cousins and brothers and sisters were rabbinites, rabbanim, right? And some were karaites. And there are various, now the Karaites obviously had different interpretations of the Torah. Uh, for instance, one classic interpretation was, uh, they held, don't have fire burning in your homes and premises on Shabbat, right? So you, you can't have, any illumination, okay? Under these circumstances, for instance, yes or no to light Shabbat candles became a very big issue. Not only how are we going to see the food on Friday evening, but it became a matter of principle because if you didn't do that, then you are probably from the Karaites. Uh, but we do have from the Cairo Geniza Ketubot, in which one of the sides is Karaite, one of the sides is Rabbinite, and the Ketubot arrange this. For instance, if the wife, the bride is a Karaite, then the husband can't force her to light Shabbat candles. He can't force her to have warm food on Shabbat, uh, and so on. Where, uh, and this is agreed upon ahead of time. Um, and so we see that for the first several centuries with the emergence of the Karaites, who some scholars say may have had in their possession ancient traditions dating back to the time of Bai Cheney. And they saw themselves as no less legitimate than the Rabbinite establishment. So for the first few centuries, people from the same families and so were part of this. Now, there's no doubt, halakhically, that Karaites are born Jews. Okay, unlike, for instance, the Samaritans, the Shomronim, who they think they are born Israelites from the original Israelite tribes. And who are we, people that came back from Bavel and said that we're from the Israelite Yehudim. And, but according to the Bible, the Shomronim, right, and Sefer Melachim are not originally from the Jewish people, but rather were moved there by the Assyrian kings. Be that as it may, about the Karaites, there's no doubt 
that they're absolutely of Jewish stock. As time went by, this is exactly what caused a major problem because uh, as time went by, it became more convenient. The, the, the communities tended to interact within each other and therefore um, Karaites married Karaites. And after some time, the, the rabbis began to say, just a minute, um, it's very easy to have kiddushin, right? It's very easy. You, know, you need two witnesses and some item of value and a uh, uh, willing bride, bride and groom, and you have kiddushin. Gerushin, a get, that's very complicated. How do you write a get and this and that? And that's explicated in great detail in the Talmud, and it's not simple at all. Therefore, imagine a case in which a Jewish Karaite man and a Karaite woman marry. Okay, so they're married also according to Rabbi Talaha, but then if they ultimately divorce, the divorce is invalid according to Talmud Halahaus. They don't know the details of how to write a gate. So what happens? The woman remarries. She thinks she's a divorcee, but actually, according to Talmud Halahaus, she's still married to the original husband. And she innocently goes and marries again and has children. So those children are mamzerim. Who knows how many times this happened throughout history. And then her children, who according to the other Karaites were in perfectly good standing, married with other Karaites. So now all of the Karaites are Safik Mamzerim. Okay, now a Mamzer, there's essentially no way out. Okay, it's a, so therefore, even were the Karaites to recant and say we or an individual Karaites, I'm very sorry. I'm I I realize I want to become a rabbinite Jew. They could become a rabbinite Jew, but they could never marry an original rabbinite Jew because they are Safik Mamzil. Um, okay, can I share screen? Um Try right now, Professor. What? Okay, try I'll right try. now. Um, here. Okay, so we'll see this. Okay, so here's the screen. And you see here, in Beit Yosef Abatuim, Matsati Katu, Rabbi Yosef Karo writes, Sheshiv Rabbeinu Shinshon, who is not completely identified. Uh, Ashkenazic scholar from around the year 1200. We're not allowed to marry them. They married somehow validly their wives. If they divorce, it's not according to Talmudic halacha. 
ומשנים ממטבע שטבעו חכמים בגיטין, because they changed the format of the גיטין that Hamuric rabbis determined, ונישאות לאחרים בחיי הבעלים, and these women then marry someone else in the lifetime of their original husbands, נמצאו הבנים ממזרים מאשת איש. Okay, that's the logic that I just described, and in fact, in Shulchan Aruch, you see that Remar of Moshe Iselish says, הקראים אסור להתחתן בהם וכולם ספק ממזרים, ואין מקבלים אותם אם רוצים לחזור. Even if they want to come back and be part of the rabbinite group, we don't accept them. Why? Because they are safek, they're all safek manzerim. Um, moving forward several hundred years, uh, we see here, uh, this is in the original from a great encyclopedic work composed by Rabbi Chaim Chizkiah Medini, who lived in the second part of the 19th century and around 1899 returned to Eretz Yisrael and was the chief rabbi of Hebron until he died in 1905. But in a discussion, he's cited uh, almost verbatim by Rabbi Ovadia Yosef, who says, he quotes from Stechem and Rabbi Chaim Chizke Medini, that Rabbi Medini said, Im machziv, if, I'm not, if my memory doesn't fail me, talia, I remember, it's clear to me, when I was a young man, he grew up in Eretz Yisrael, I heard from rabbinic scholars the leader of the Karaim in Jerusalem this is around 1830 the chief Karaite scholar in Jerusalem wanted to be accepted by the rabbinite community in Jerusalem and become part of the rabbinite community. And he approached the Rishon Etzion, Rabbi Moshe Suzin, and if we would do that, he would donate all of his, he was a wealthy person, he would donate all of his money to the uh, the community fund of the Jerusalem rabbinite community. But nobody lent an ear to his request. And also, says Chaim Chizka Medini, I also recall this, in my childhood I heard, and perhaps I saw this in some book, in ancient, many years ago, he doesn't know exactly when, 
the scholars of Israel, the rabbinite scholars, Nitva'adu convened, they convened at the request of one of Karaite who wanted to join Nachalat Hashem, meaning to join the Rabbinite community. And accept upon himself a commitment to Torah Sheba'al Peh. After the rabbis discussed the pros and cons and this and that, they concluded the bottom line of their argument with a wonderful phrase. And here you have it in the original Hakkarain with apostrophe Y, because this shows that it's a mishak minim, it's a play on words. Hakkarain enamit ahim le'olam. And if you know, I'll remind you something from the laws of Avelut, right? That people avail in the cemetery, the rabbi or whoever's leading the cemetery comes and they make a kiri'ah, right? On their shirt or whatever. And this kiri'ah, okay, there's a decision, can it or can it not ever be mended? And to mend a tear, a tear is kera. Kora'im kiri'ah, with an ayin, that's a kera, and to mend the tear is le'achot et ha'kera. But as you know, ach also means a brother. And here, this phrase, which is a wonderful uh, uh, literary phrase, they said, Hakkaraim enam mitahim leolam. The Karaites can never become our brothers ever. In other words, there was a tear in the fabric of the Jewish nation. The Karaites went one way. We, the Rabbinites, held a different way, and our ways have parted. Now there are two. Jews, two groups of Jews, one is the Rabbinites, one is the Karaites, that tear, that rending of the fabric of the Jewish people can never be mended. Um, now, in Europe, there were Karaites in Lita. And in the uh, um, the um, Russian Empire, and the relationship between the Karaites and the Rabbinites in Eastern Europe was terrible. And uh, um, in fact, the at a certain point, the Karaites, when there was a anti-Jewish policy in time of I think the Empress Catherine the Great, 
because the Jews killed Jesus. So they brought a delegation. They said, we don't have Torah Shabbat because we are the Jews from before Jesus. So we can't be held to blame for that. And in fact, the whole policy of the Pale of Settlement and the and so on against the Jews was held by the Russian Empire against the Rabbi Jews and not the Karai Jews. But in Egypt, um, in Egypt and certain other places in the Middle East, but especially in our case in Egypt, the relationship between the Karaites and the Rabbinites was never one of bitter enmity. And over the generation, some rabbis, the last time this happened before modern times was in the 16th century, some rabbis in Egypt said that we could Yes, we could explain how we can marry Karaites. We'll get to that in a minute. But then also in Egypt, the communities drifted apart. So there was a Karaite neighborhood in Cairo and a Rabbinite neighborhood. And they knew of each other and they said hello to each other on the street, but they didn't mingle and didn't marry. However, Fast forward to the beginning, so the end of the 19th, the very beginning of the 20th century. Dafka, the processes of secularization and of the notion that there's a Jewish nation, Zionism began. Conversely, Egyptian nationalism began, and it wasn't sure if the Jews were part of that or not. So it began to be that among the younger generation of Karaites and Rabbinites, more and more young people said, why should we continue this enmity anyway? We're not so religious, either of us. And she looks like a very nice young woman and he's a very nice young man. And they began to be interested in marrying. But we have this whole tradition that it's impossible. They're all Safik Mamzirim. So the rabbis of Egypt in the first decades of the 20th century came up with various ways to solve this issue. And we're immediately going to see one move that was done by Rabbi Ohana uh, around 1940. But before that, there were other rabbis who in fact proposed solutions that were halakhically more elegant, perhaps less interesting, but were more elegant, okay? So the rabbis um, said, look, right? It's very clear, everybody knows that the Karaites, it's very easy to have Kiddushin and that's what, they, but let's go and actually check what do they actually do with the marriage ceremony? And they sent rabbis to attend Karaite weddings and look and see what happens. They saw there's no Kenyan. There's never Kiddushin. The way that the 
Karaites interpret halacha, the woman never becomes eshet ish according to our understanding. So if she never becomes eshet ish, she really doesn't need the divorce. And even if she does have a divorce, she's not still married to the original husband because she was never married to the original husband, so they can't be mamziring. So that's one way that they dealt with this. The other way that they dealt with this is, the rabbi said, just a minute. Let's even assume that the original Kiddushin are somehow valid. Let's look at the Gitin, right? In the Torah, it says that if a man wants to divorce a woman, right? So obviously the Karaites see that it's written, right? There has to be some document. Let's see what the Rabbinites have in their, do- the Karaites have in their document. And they checked that and they saw that. It's true. It's not written according to Talmud Yekalachan. But the basic elements of Gerushi that are required, the Oraita, also according to rabbinic halacha, do exist in the Karaite divorce documents. So therefore, the Oraita the Gitin hold. Okay, so they said either way, either the Kiddushin don't hold it, which case you don't need a get, or the Kiddushin hold, but the get is at least valid, the Oraita, and therefore they can't be Safek Mamzerim to prevent them from getting married with Rabbinites if they choose to join the Rabbinite community. Right? So they began to be in Egypt, of all the places in the Jewish world, in the first decades of the 20th century, marriages between people of Karaite origin and Jews of Rabbinite origin under the auspices of the Rabbinite uh, uh, rabbis. In 1940, Rabbi Nisim Ohana, who was then the Abedin of Cairo wasn't happy with certain technical issues of the resolution that had been done by the rabbis earlier in Egypt, but he wanted to reach the same conclusion. He was in favor of being able to maintain this new move that rabbinites and carrots could marry each other, but he wasn't satisfied with the technical details of what the earlier rabbis had done. And therefore he wrote this Teshuvah. Okay, can you see now this text? Theological Halacha, third session? Okay. Okay, so in an earlier section of this Teshuvah, he explained why the he's not happy with the technicalities of the solution that the others offered. And he writes like this, HaRishonim SheKedamunu Chashavu Et Bnei HaMikra Ki Yisrael Mumar 
שאף על פי שחטא ישראל הוא. The rabbis of previous generations considered בני המקרא, meaning the Karaites, as a Jew who had apostatized and chosen a different religion. And the halacha is very clear, אף על פי שחטא ישראל הוא. Okay. And what does this mean? Okay, so let's take the famous situation that is known from uh, Spain after 1492. A lot of conversos were living there. They had been Jewish. They, rather than being expelled, chose to become Christians or live as Christians outwardly. And then they married between them. And the halacha is that despite the fact that they had apostatized and were now living as Christians, if a Jewish or formerly Jewish man now living as a Christian gave kiddushi to a formerly Jewish woman now living as a Christian woman in front of two edim, the Kiddushin are valid. Okay. And uh, we'll go down here. Um, and he's quoting from the Shulchan Aruch, who says, Neven 44, if a Jewish man goes and lives to a different religion, he, he apostatizes out, but he gave kiddushin to a Jewish woman or a woman of Jewish stock. Kiddushav kiddushin gemurim. It's a complete, not a suffix. It's an absolute, uh, absolute marriage. If they want a divorce, she can't go just now and live with another man. They need to get. Even if he had a child after he converted. The child born to what? To a converted Jewish man and a converted Jewish woman. Later, this child, now the second generation of converso, Kiddush Israelite, the Jewish woman, Kiddushav Kiddushin. But this is only if the child, second generation converso, has a child with a Jewish woman. And now getting back to the Karaites, because their marriage is invalid, despite having left the rabbinite tradition, the Gita menam get. The get of the Karaites is no good because the it's not done according to the rules of rabbinic halacha, as halacha interprets the Torah. They have become forbidden to marry into the congregation, meaning they cannot marry Karaites, Karaites cannot marry them. 
Okay, now we're moving down. He says, just a minute, just a minute. If we look carefully at the text of the Shulchan Aruch on this matter, we see, and to make a long story short, we see that he's dealing with the first, the second generations of the people that have apostatized out. But what happens after 10 generations? What happens after 20 generations? I mean, to take a well-known ago, the early Christians were all Jews. Does that mean that today all Christians we think might actually be Jewish? Okay, no. At some point, this this is what Abu Hanna said. At some point, this peters out. It doesn't continue forever. B'nai b'neihem, the children of their children. who are following the ways of the original Karai forefathers. That made the, the Israelite religion into something else. And they changed certain things from our Torah, meaning as we correctly understand it. They are no longer considered an apostate Jew. At some point, they're no longer Jewish. It doesn't work forever. That's his novel interpretation of the Shulchan Aruch. That it's true, Israel of Israel, it's true that a person who apostatizes out is still a Jew, that if they marry a Jewish woman or even a second, but at some time this doesn't go on forever and they become going gemurim. So what does this mean? This he says is true of the Karaites. Bene Hamikra that they left us and they explained the Torah according to their own understanding and they do a different things. Okay. They don't follow Torah Shebaal Peh. And their children, their children's children until now. They have deviated from the path of the holy tradition of Torah that we, the Rabbinites, have. They don't believe in Torah And they changed the format of Judaism that our rabbis have established. They don't have the status of a Jewish apostate. So what does he do? He says, the Karaites, contrary to the perception that was held for generations, are not apostate Jews. They have become goyim. 
they have become complete goyim, like Eskimos, like Papua New Guinea. They have no connection to the Israelite people because they have abandoned completely for generation after generation the and therefore what if they recant and they now want to convert and become Jews and they now want to become Jewish by conversion they can't be accepted why because there's a Wonderful idea if you think about it. Only Jewish people can be Mamzerim. Only Jewish people can be Mamzerim. If a person is a non Jew, they marry, they divorce, they sleep around, whatever, the deen of Mamzerim doesn't apply to non Jews. So by declaring the Karaites that they are not Jews, what have I enabled them? To become rabbinite Jews without any issue of mamzil? And now, and here is the amazing final section of Rabbi Ohana. Please, Karaites, don't be mad at me because I have now defined you allahically as goy. Okay, what's behind this whole endeavor? The whole endeavor is behind that friendship, love, brotherly affection has been increasing in Egypt between the Karaites and Rabbinites. Which is why we want to find some way that they can marry. So Rabbi Ohana says, how could they marry? This is, they could do this because I now define them as Goyim. So now they become Jewish. But he knows that he's thereby insulting the Karaites. Because this is for the good of the the entire body of us. Now, who is this us? This us is us, the rabbinites, and us, the Karaites. So on one side, he's saying, no, they're going. On the other side, but why am I saying that they're going? Because I actually see them as part of the same group. I am going to mend the fabric of the Jewish nation. I am going to mend the here, as opposed to what Chaim Chizkiah Medini heard in his youth, that's what I'm doing. And it should be clear to B'nai HaMikra and to us that that's what's happening here. I'm making a 
technical rule to say that they are goyim in order to mend the fabric in the body of the Jewish nation, to release them from their imprisonment, from now on, they can enter the community of the Lord, right? They can come. Okay, so if there's any, right? If there's any teleological halakha, this is it. I'm saying that they're going in order to mend the fabric of the Jewish nation that for hundreds of years we couldn't marry. And then he makes an even more, well, I don't know, more radical, but no less radical. And he, moves, he says, you think that I'm the first person that did this, that made a radical reinterpretation of Allahat to say they're not Jewish apostates, they're going. You think I'm the first person that made such a move? He says, no. Kegon ze matzano David ha-melech shalom We found something very similar with David ha-melech. Sheratzu bimei Shaul ha-melech l'archiko u'leosro l'avo b'kehal Hashem. Okay, now this is, if you've read the Tavudik, text that I sent you, okay, the Talmud imagines a whole very complex and ongoing discussion and problem that arose in the time of when David was a young man and Shaul was the king. And somebody raised a very good question. How could anybody even consider David for any position in the Jewish people? He comes from Ruta Moaviyah, and it says in the Torah, Lo yavo Moavi b'kahal Hashem. Ratzu b'meshaul ha-melech l'archikol ha-srol avo b'kahal Hashem. Just like the Karais. People wanted to prevent them from marrying. That they discovered that they had a tradition from the prophet Samuel, just from the prophet Samuel. That's an ancient tradition. Samuel was alive. They discovered a tradition. Amuni, says, but this is only true of Amoni. Amonit. Amonit is not forbidden. Moavi is forbidden. And they ruled. Since it's only a male Amoni and only a male Moavi that's forbidden and not a female Ammonit and not a female Moavit, and now they permitted David Amelech to marry into the Jewish people, and ultimately he became what? King. We're waiting for the Mashiach ben David, right? He says, 
do you think that that was common knowledge and well-accepted tradition at that time? No. It was a novel halakha. And if you saw the sources, you see that the way this halakha was determined, how did they know that this is the correct tradition and not the other tradition, which is much more logical that all places where it uses male wording, it's also female, like it says, okay, it's also Bitzrit, it's not allowed. What ultimately led to this tradition being accepted, according to the Talmud, some fellow of Ishmaelite background who had converted to Judaism came into the Bet Midrash and he said, enough of these deliberations, whoever doesn't accept this interpretation that David Melech is mutar, I'm going to kill him. Oh, yes, we have a tradition. That's what we're going to decide according to that tradition. Why? And so Rabbi Ohana says, that's what was done then, and that's what I'm doing now. This verse that we say in Halil, I am your servant, the son of Amatecha. Who's that? You have freed me from my shackles by this interpretation. Okay. And now Rabbi Yohana concludes, Masha'iltsani lecha. What caused me to follow this path and make a novel, radical reinterpretation of the Shulchan Aruch that at some time the person is going? The ways of the Torah are ways of pleasantness and our paths are paths of peace. And similarly, it says in Yeshayahu, Shalom, Shalom, Lerachok, Velakarov, Amar Hashem, Peace, peace to he who is far and who is near, Amar Hashem, Urefa'ativ, and I will heal him. And as the rabbis have pointed out, Shalom, Shalom, first, Lerachok. And after that, Lakarov. Okay, so God seeks healing for the one that's far away. And by the way, this is the source also for the idea because the Baalei Teshuvah were a hokim. They were far away. So they get first place. So that's what he says I'm doing. With the Karaites, the Karaites were far away, they were distant, and so on. I made a radical interpretation in the spirit of what happened with David Amelech in order to reach the conclusion of the Ahot et Akeraim and Urefa'ativ to heal 
this situation in the, the fabric of the Jewish people. Um, and so this uh, is the third of the three texts that we saw about teleological goal-driven, goal-oriented halachic sat in which the rabbi assesses the situation, identifies what has to be the answer, and finds sources within halacha that enable this to happen within the framework of halacha. And I'll just conclude by saying that what we saw, and there's other sources that I'll send you, and via uh, uh, Ohada, an article that I wrote about this. I, there's also an English translation, right? So there's two ways of doing this. One is to find a peripheral source, a peripheral opinion, which until now has not been mainstream, and bring it in and rely upon it. That's what Rav um, Misas did last week. When he found this sort of said, oh, it's only if you actually do the most severe things on Shabbat that entails skila. And then he went and said, show that the, the, the butchers weren't doing that. So let's take a peripheral source and move it into the center. And here, what Rabbi Ohana is doing, he's taking a central source, the Shulchan Aruch which is talking about Yehudi Mumar, a Jew who apostatizes, and which conventionally was and has been interpreted to mean that this is for all generations. If somebody up to 20, 30 generations living as a Christian can somehow show that they have always been part of conversos, varying conversos, then they're Jewish. He says, no, that's not the correct meaning of the Shulchan Aruch. After some time, this peters out. They're no longer Jewish. They're goyim. And that's what happened with the Karaites. But precisely because of that, we can mend, right? We have here, Okay, Okay, that's it for now. And if you have any questions or comments, thank you so much, Professor. That was uh, brilliant. And I actually think this one is the most radical one out of the uh, three we saw. Um, okay, so does anyone have any questions? I see in the chat box we have uh, Robert. Uh, Robert, do you want to ask your question? Uh, yeah, uh, my, my question was um, very simply. Why did it not worry the um, the rabbinate um, Hachamim at the time of the Kara uh, that the uh, that there might have been an issue among Zerut within the Karite community? Um, well, that's a good question. Meaning, why is it that in the first centuries after the schism, uh, they weren't worried about that? Well, first of all, that's a good question. The answer is that we don't know because they weren't worried, so they didn't have to go and justify why they're not worried. Um, so we don't know that. It could be that they held like the Egyptian rabbis or some Egyptian rabbis in the 16th century, 
that um, the Karaite Kirushin were invalid or the Karaite Gitin were valid. Um, but uh, there is, in, in fact, uh, addition that there's all instances in the 13th century in the time of the grandson or great grandson of the Rambam that a whole bunch of Karaites in Cairo decided to join the Rabbinites and they were accepted. So this was a lengthy process. So it took several hundred, more than like four or five, 600 years until the schism became such that they were identified as a Safek Mazevim. Um, Rob, you want to try asking a question? Yeah, can you, can you hear me? Perfect, your audio is working. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I, I just, I didn't quite get the connection between the Karaites and the Anusim and why Ravahana created a connection as in, I, my assumption is, I might be wrong, that the, that the Karaites were more particular about not marrying out. Um, I, I don't know that for sure, but I, I would have assumed that, that would be the case. Whereas with Anusim, you would you could assume that you know they might be less particular over the generations because they're involved in a different faith altogether. Um, you know that involves mixing with other you know with other non-Jews. So it yeah, that's that's my question. I guess is why why is there what's is that assumption I've made incorrect around the not marrying out? Um, well, first of all, as far as we know. Um, the Karaites didn't marry out. In fact, the Karaites had no notion of Giyul. If you look in the Torah, right, the Pshat of the Torah, there's no Giyul. The whole institution of Giyul doesn't exist in the Torah. They talk about Gerim, but the Gerim that the Torah talks about are non-Jews who are living among the Jewish people in this way or that, but they never talk about somebody who was born a non-Jew having a procedure to become Jewish. Um, and uh, so according to the Pshat, and apparently the Karaim follow this, um, there, there was no Giyul. And the Karaites only married other Karaites. In fact, at a certain point um, um, in uh, the book, right here in Rabbinic Creativity, in the modern Middle East, there's a chapter about the issue in Egypt. So Rabbi Yohanna appears there also, but there's a lot of other information. And you can see that the Chief Karai Chacham of Cairo in the 1920s and 1930s was asked by the Karai public, why don't we have Giyu? We would love to have Giyu because if you don't have people coming in, but you always have over the generations attrition of people leaving the faith. So the Karaites were getting less and less. And he wrote to the chief rabbi, the chief 
rabbi of world Karai Jewry in, was in Crimea, who wrote back, no, we don't have that. It's against our Karai tradition. And in order to make a different decision about that, there will be, have to be a special uh, session of the world leading body of the Karaites, and we're not going to do that. So, Anusim, um, I mean, with all due respect to Rob, okay, Rob Ohana doesn't say that Anusim will marry out. He says that, and if somebody remains living, okay, okay, the Anusim, our imagination of them is right, that they don't really believe Christianity. They don't really believe Christianity. They're only making believe, but they really believe Judaism. Okay, so I, if this is completely true or not completely true, I don't know, but um, that's the uh, the way it's portrayed, and therefore, um, but let's say they didn't. Let's say they were people who are formerly Jewish, and they're living in some place, and for some reason, although they now believe in a different religion, they continue to intermarry with each other. Right? They're living on a desert island somewhere. And they believe in Hinduism, but they marry each other, but they don't believe in Judaism. So Rabbi Ohana says after some time, they're no longer Jewish. Because they have followed a different religion and they're no longer Jewish. And for now, the correct way of understanding the Shuhana Ruch, which is moot, some people say, oh, that's not the right way of understanding. Uh, then, um, they're no longer Jewish. And therefore, they can't be Safik Mavzirim, and therefore, they could convert and become Jewish. So, so that's the, the, the move. And no? Sorry, um, I was just. Uh comment, uh, giving a comment that um, in Mallorca is what happened with the Shuetas, uh, the stories of, uh, you know, the conversos that uh, got married in between themselves and so no long ago, maybe a few years ago, uh, were recognized in, in Israel as a Jewish people, even if they were unseen. Um, well, um, I, I don't know if I know enough of the specifics of that, but generally speaking, obviously there were, according to as I understand, in Mallorca and in certain other places, groups of people who from 1492, or maybe even before that 1391 in Mallorca, have been living as Christians, but married among themselves but their knowledge of Judaism was really increasingly very, very tenuous. And they had certain 
behaviors which they themselves didn't completely understand why they did it, right? And the grandmother used to go down to the cellar to light candles on Friday evening when nobody would see and so on. So um, should today or to the extent today that people from that community or group want to become part of the Jewish people, right? So we say, okay, they have to convert. Well, no, what I'm saying is that the Shuetas, in their, they have a very specific case uh, that said they were recognized as Jewish without needed to convert. But the only thing they had to do is, of course, learn everything about Judaism because they didn't know anything about it. It's very a very specific case uh, of Mallorca. It's not like, uh, for, uh, for example, the people from Belmonte or the places that they couldn't prove that they married in between themselves. But the Chuetas, there is there is a record, and they can they they could prove that. That's why. That's the difference. Um. Okay. It could so. Are you saying that, excuse me, because I'm not completely conversant with this issue. Are you saying that you know definitely that on the basis of the fact that these people only married within their own group, they have in fact been accepted by rabbis today as Jewish without you? Yes, I know, I know, I know people there. Uh, I mean, my family is from uh, from uh, Mallorca. Not, not, I'm not Shweta, but I know, I know the people. That's why I'm, I'm speaking to them. Okay, and they have been accepted by rabbis as Jewish without you. Only the ones that could prove that their their uh, the lineage, you know, they they have a tree that can be proved that uh, they were uh, always marrying in between themselves. Okay, fine. So. Uh, uh, taking that as a basis for our discussion, mm. obviously the rabbis that did that didn't agree with the interpretation of Rabbi Ohana. No, that's why I was... <laughs> it was they didn't agree with that interpretation, mm -hmm. right? And they said they don't need because of Israel, who this can go on for hundreds of years, tens of generations, and they never become anything else to the extent that they can prove lineage through the female line. Yeah. The, the thing that, that happened is because it is an island, uh, even if they converted, the other people, the Christians, they always keep them aside. So uh, somehow they were forced to marry in between themselves. Uh, and, uh, and this is why it was a very specific uh, case. Um. So, so you're saying that actually they were they were accepted, and what you said the other people don't accept them in in Mallorca because it's an island, and uh, do you know that they don't, don't ha they didn't have so much uh, choice to go away, you know. So okay, well they yeah. And therefore, the, the, the Christians, their neighbors, 
they knew the families who were convert and they didn't they didn't never accepted them as as a, as a Christians also even if they went you know uh, to the church and everything and so they were always in between themselves all the time okay they said that so um and that's it. that's only an interesting fact that you know uh <laughs> it's commenting so that that's interesting well the truth is that all around the world now in many places people are coming and discovering that their ancestors were jewish yeah. and they want to reinstate the connection to the jewish people and whether or not the rabbis or the Jewish communities are so happy about this, I'm not sure. Um, um, and, uh, but there are many, many communities. You may be aware of a, a group called the uh, Kulano in the United States, which is establishing contact with many such newly discovered or newly self-discovered people around the world who identify as yeah. mm -hmm. as Jews. Yeah, yeah, I heard about that, yes. Okay, any more questions or comments? We have uh, Simon. Yeah, um, I have two questions, if I may. Um, firstly, does Rav Achana address the question of what would happen to a, a Karaite woman who wanted to marry a Kohen? which would be the weak point in his, his solution as opposed to the earlier solution. In other words, if there was a Karaite who was a Kohen? No, a, a, a Rabbinite who was a Kohen who wanted right. to marry a Karaite woman. Right, so apparently he couldn't do that if she was going to be a Giorit, he would have the same issue as with all other uh, Giorot. Um, we would have the same issue, correct? Yeah, does Rabbi Hanna address this or does he just? No, he's, he's, he's addressing in general how to solve the general problem. And once he's moving all of them, all those who are interested, into the category of would be Gerim, he's creating this opportunity that they're not Mamzirim, but he's creating the problem that they are no. Gerim. Yeah. So, okay, that's question one. Yeah, the question two is um, Halakhana Maase in Israel today are the members of the Karaite communities who came to Israel, and what is the attitude of the rabbinate uh, to them? Um, okay, so that's, that's a, 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 a wonderful question. Um, this uh, procedure of this policy that was adopted by the Egyptian rabbis in the first half of the 20th century was made known to the rest of the Jewish world de facto by the fact that in 1947, a young man from Jerusalem who was very talented but could never find a job in Jerusalem because he had burned his bridges with the Iraqi Jewish community from which he hailed Rabbi Ovadia Yosef. So 
he couldn't find a job in Eretz Israel, so they found him a job to be Av Beit in Cairo. While in Cairo, he became acquainted with this whole novel move of the rabbis of Cairo, which, however, did have basis retrospectively in certain 16th century Tishuvot from Cairo, and he bought it. He mm. accepted it. And he brought it back to Eret Israel. And certain rabbis that he taught, that he instructed, followed this policy. Um, and uh, meanwhile, okay, so, so in Israel today, those rabbis that follow the policy of brought to Eretz Yisrael by Rabbi Vadya Yosef will marry such couples. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll, I'll tell a, a, a story, which is that, as you know, in 1954, in Egypt, there was a whole thing called Esek Habish, in which the Lavon affair, in which a whole group of young Jews from Egypt had become convinced by people from the Israeli intelligence that they should serve as members of the Israeli intelligence and help do certain things. And then foolishly, they were activated to carry out certain symbolic acts of sabotage, which they were not trained for, and they were caught. And two of them were hung. And both of them were called Moshe. One was called Moshe Azar, and one was called Moshe Marzuk. Moshe Marzuk, who was a very talented children's doctor in Alexandria, was a Karaite. Okay. His brother came to Israel, Yosef Marzuk. He was a microbiologist, a doctor of microbiology. And he worked together with my father in the Ministry of Health in Jerusalem. And they became quite friendly. And he told me that when he was serving in the Israeli army, Yosef Marzuk, he met a young woman soldier and they fell in love. And Rav Gorin married them. Um, so... Uh, yes, on the other hand, there is in Israel a whole entire community of several tens of thousands of people who see themselves as Karaites, follow Karaite practices and uh, theology, and generally marry within their own group. Um, but there are certain rabbis in Israel who follow the Ovadia Yosef innovation that he brought over from Egypt. And so it's possible today in principle to, for such marriages to occur in Israel. So that's the second question. Thank you. That's all my questions. Chacham right. uh, is really setting a dangerous precedent, I think, because 
if we have someone who they marry within each other, they're committed to Knesset Israel, but they hold, they just disagree with our principles, Chacham Ochana can easily, you know, cut them off as not Jewish. It's a very dangerous precedent. Um, okay, so first of all, yes, you can see why some other people not, not want to do that. Um, you can also see that this is like assimilation, okay? Jews assimilate out. At some point, they effectively disappear into the majority culture. Even in their own mind, they see themselves as something else. The other Jews see themselves as something else. But it doesn't happen at a certain instance. It's only looking back. In fact, in this case of Rabbi Hanna, it's looking back 30, 40, 50 generations and saying over time, that's what happened. So it's not taking somebody today, oh, they're reform. I don't agree with them, they're going. Um, but if there were people who would this, and then they would become Messianic Jews, and then they would become full-blown Christians, and then, you know, in several hundred years, Rabbi Yochanan would say, they're not Jewish for this purpose. That's it's only in the first generations they maintain this identity somehow that we see them as as ours. Right, but what I'm trying to say is that the carrot stood the test of time. Excuse me? Um, I can't hear you. I can't I hear. I think the host's connection has dropped. Ha. Huh. Well, that's an apocalyptic event. You're going to pipe up and go to bed, are you? Can I be cheeky and ask another question then while we're waiting for the host to reconnect? Okay. Do, do you know what Robert, Robert Ohana's objections to the position of the rabbis of Cairo? <clears throat> you know, they were, uh, they had a, a, a shita, and he, you said he, he, there were certain things he didn't like about that, but you didn't tell us what. Um, well, um, he said he felt that they were inconsistent because on the level of principle, they said on the level of principle uh, uh, that uh, the, they could never be Manzirim because who was the, they, they never had a proper marriage under Halakha. And on the other hand, if they did have a proper marriage under Halakha, somehow the get was invalid but then the rabbis of Cairo also said, or some of them said, but just to be sure, we want to know that as far back as we can check in this specific, each specific case, there didn't occur a divorce in the 
recent generations. And we wanted to, any, so he said, that's inconsistent. That means that you're really not so sure about the fact that the divorce is valid or that the Kiddushin is invalid. Anyway, he, he felt that they felt it was fine, but he felt it was inconsistent and that his move was was going to solve it once and for all. But obviously, it seems like Rav Avadia felt it was also fine because he adopted that shita from what you've told us. Right. Okay. Um, I apologize. My Wi-Fi uh, fell before. Um, but if uh, I think we're going to close it for the night. Uh, Chacham, thank you so much. We appreciate the series and the share today. And uh, we hope uh, to have you on again. And thank you so much, everyone, for coming. And uh, have a good night. Thank you so much. You too. Laila Tov, and thank you for attending. Thank you. Thank you. Laila Tov, thank you.